Brian Olke. What's up, buddy? Hey, man. Good to see you. Good to see you, dude. We are rocking the nerdery glasses today, both of us. <laughs> well, this is something. This is something we'll get into today. We're both, yeah. we're both getting old. We're both. <laughs> we're, we're both like being prescribed like bifocals. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. You know, it's middle middle age is a uh, is a bear, man. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, that is sort of on track with what we want to talk about today. Um, we thought we would do an episode today uh, titled "Inhabit Your Humility." And this is going to be a good one, Ryan, because, you know, last week, uh, Keith Witt and I did an episode of Wit and Wisdom. We're actually talking about the theme of, of humility. Actually, we're talking about it in the context of uh, the H Factor, which is uh, a book that Keith talked about during the show mm. that basically takes a look at the, the big five personality types. Mm. And it's suggesting a sixth. And it's the H Factor. It's uh, the mm. H stands for uh, honesty and humility. Mm. And what's interesting here is that of all the personality factors described, you know, when it comes to the big five, each of the personality factors described, it's not like one is negative and one is positive or, you know what I mean? They're all, mm -hmm. they're all sort of neutral, but mm -hmm. this is the one factor that is, uh, you know, if, if you have, if you score high in honesty and high in humility, that is um, seen as a very, very positive thing. And it's going to have a very positive uh, benefits for the rest of your life. Whereas if you score super low on honesty and humility, you're probably going to run into some problems. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because it's the one sort of personality factor there that again, sort of, you know, there, there, there is a right way and a wrong way here. Mm -hmm. Um, all the other ones, ones, extrovert, introvert, there's no judgment associated with that, but mm -hmm. in terms of being, you know, honest or dishonest or having mm -hmm. humility or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, boastful arrogance, uh, that's, mm -hmm. there's sort of, that's sort of a more of a, a black and white there. So that mm -hmm. opened up this whole discussion about humility and mm. i've really been thinking a lot about you know the concept of humility as it intersects with the integral community um you know i i i continue to think that the integral model has been such a gift to so many people and you know one of the really really powerful things about the integral model is it gives so much explanatory power you know what i mean like we get to we get to sort of internalize this massive comprehensive map where it kind of like, we feel like we always know where we are in relation to everything else. It makes the universe feel understandable. And there's a seduction there, I think. I think there's a seduction that, that because the universe feels a little bit more understandable, because we have this sort of scaffolding of reality, we kind of start to let ourselves think that we know a little of everything, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I think that there's, there is an increasing need. We're seeing an increasing need, particularly in our culture, our media culture, for what we'll call in the show epistemic humility. And that's one of the things that we wanted to talk about. I mean, we're going to talk about humility across, you know, a number of different stages, let's say stages of life. We can talk about physical humility, um, particularly for us as we're, as we're entering middle age and we're kind of starting to feel uh, mm -hmm. the entropic forces, maybe a little bit more than we did 10 years ago. Yep. Um, so there's that physical humility. Then there's an intellectual humility. We'll spend a little bit talking about um, spiritual humility, what that means. And mm -hmm. then at the end of the show, I figured we would do something a little bit fun. I've got the uh, <laughs> top 10 uh, integral stereotypes for us to take a look at, which will be another opportunity for us to, I think, self-reflect, practice a little humility and mm -hmm. see which of these kind of caricatures we may or may not 
line up with, or maybe, you know, some of them represent versions of ourselves that we were in the past and we've since recovered, but it'll be fun. Mm -hmm. So I hope everyone sticks around for that. So yeah, man, Ryan, humility. What do you think of the topic, buddy? Hmm. Well, thanks for the setup. Uh, I mean, it makes me think off the bat, like, you know, four quadrants of just like what humility looks and feels like in each quadrant uh because we kind of already set that up you know i mean like there's like that physical humility that arises from physical experiences but inner humility whether that's through spirituality or psychologically or something like that relational humility like how are we humble that's oftentimes how we feel it the most a lot of times is relational you know i think physical and then relational of like you know humble with respect to what you know and then you can see it in terms of looking at systemic things um but i also think i was thinking about this uh you know do like a show about humility like i don't know begs begs the the feeling of being humble of like you know like part of me is being like let's let's talk about how you could be humble you know i was like i'm like well hey hey who the hell are you to talk to me about humility yeah yeah right so part of it so like (laughs) it's a funny thing uh so partly like i i lean towards just like that raw experience of it of just like i like you said the honesty and humility because they go together of just like and that's what for me it is inhabited just like let me just sit with that you know like of like my own rawness around my own experience of humility when it arises and a lot of times it's like something that happens on its own you know it's it's kind of a funny thing let me cultivate being humble like, I, I don't think like that's the direct, I don't know. It's something about, it seems like it's an indirect thing. Like something happens with letting go, surrendering, life happening, you know, mm-hmm. like meeting some experience that was not in our control and acknowledging it and letting go. So we can talk about intellectual humility as, you know, that arises. Like when you, when you start talking with somebody intellectually, you can start feeling your own arrogance, you know, and eventually you're gonna be like, okay, maybe I'm gonna let go into that. So like I, uh, for me, I always like it's kind of like after the fact of the the humility is like you know and then it's like okay um i also do so want to say we 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 don't find humility humility finds us is if, sort of yeah that's you said it better <laughs> that's that's my uh that's that seems to be my experience and i know too you have a nice graph that you'll talk about later but like all of us typologically i think are end up <clears throat> in different spots where like i know some friends who are really confident assertive in ways that like I had to like grow into and, but they, they would lean towards maybe being arrogant, you know, and where I would have been like labeled, you know, externally could have been labeled as humble or something, but it was not that, you know, like for sure, like being shy and not feeling underestimating, you know, my own abilities. So like just another spectrum of like the medicine we need can be different, you know, around humility and honesty, and it can take different forms. I know we're going to get into that, but that's just like the bigger frame of like typologically, you know. Um, but I, I, for me, you know, I was you already shared about, you know, middle age experiences and like the, the hilarious thing of like me going to the eye doctor recently and the normal prescription didn't really change that much. But um, I did mention, I was like, you know, doc, uh, like I noticed that like I am, I mean, I'm having like reading is like I'm farsighted already. And I'm like, I'm having to hold things out. You know, I need a lot of light. And of course, I'm just like reading off textbook description of somebody who needs bifocals or progressive lenses too. Yep. And he was just like, oh, he slapped those extra bonus lenses in front of my 
the, the machine. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can see my phone so much better. And he used the word bifocals. He didn't even use start with progressive lenses, which is what <laughs> term is used these days. It's progressive lenses for something more fancy. I was like, bifocal, get the fuck out of here. Who are you talking to? Ben Franklin, what are you talking about? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not 70 years old. But then I was like, well, he's got a point. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what's funny? There's a side note here for anybody who wears glasses. Those lenses I have, uh, not in these, but my normal glasses are actually just invisible bifocals. They're not progressives where they progressively get more and more magnified towards the bottom. And millennials, they, they're, they're, a lot of them are calling them millennial progressives because a lot more millennials and, and younger folks, actually, not just in 40s, but like uh, younger and younger, uh, wear them now. It's really mm -hmm. funny. But there's a stigma about that because when we were kids, the only people who wore bifocals were really old folks because you could see them, you know, and it was yeah. like a sign. Anyway, so that kind of experience and then other health things, you know, uh, uh, dealing with like my breathing. I, I'm using an inhaler now before I exercise for exercise-induced asthma, which apparently happens to a lot of folks, actually uh, athletes and really common. But, you know, it's these things of being like, <sighs> I this realized is I don't, this is why I don't exercise, Ryan. <laughs> it's the best way to avoid. They actually they actually are not calling it that anymore because they it makes people feel like they want to not exercise. But yeah, anyways, this these little experiences add up, and I just realized that you know, being in the 40s, you can actually have a really physically healthy life, as healthy as like someone younger, but the amount of maintenance you have to have yeah. starts <laughs> increasing, and that is a humbling experience. Yeah. Yep. You know, I think, I think this is the decade where a lot of us start um, sort of hitting the wall. You know what I mean? We start hitting the wall and we, and, and we sort of encounter our, uh, our own inertia. Yeah. <laughs> and we start to feel into like how far that inertia is going to, going to be able to take us without additional cycles being added in. Because, you know, again, with, if, with each decade, it gets progressively harder to put new cycles into it. It's, it's, you know, it's, it gets harder to hit that 20th push up and that last mile and that, you know, you really gotta, you gotta push yourself. And it's interesting, Ryan, you know, as we're talking about this, cause again, I, I, I sort of started by breaking this up into three yeah. stages, which can also be quadrants. I mean, we can also think about yep. it in quadrants, but you know, I think when it comes to our physical humility, I think mm -hmm. you are spot on that, you know, when you're 20 years old, barring chronic illness or something like that, it is very, very difficult to cultivate anything resembling, you know, physical, biological humility, because you are for all intents and purposes, immortal. You feel like you're going to be here forever. Yeah. And, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of things challenging you on that physical level to actually bring about that humility. So that's a case where humility will well, find you. It's going to take yeah. a couple decades, but it will. <laughs> and what you know, I'd say, find you. even though it's, yeah, even though it's physical, <clears throat> to me, it's often one of the best uh, starting points for that experience of humility in other areas. This is, you, you see this all the time with folks who are older or anybody who's, you know, dealing with a really difficult illness, you know, their perspectives change. This is classic. It's just, it, it, it doesn't, it's profound. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter where somebody's developmental level is. It often happens. Uh, humility happens and also like a wisdom kind of comes over people a lot of times in those situations where it's really beautiful and hard to even process at an early, a younger age. Cause it's yeah. just hard to relate to. Like you said, it's like, ah, I don't have any sense of that. I'm going to live forever, but it's a, I always like it for everything like spiritual. Oh, you think you're so enlightened. I remember someone uh, once like challenged somebody else about their 
Zen teacher or something. And they said, well, he shits just like I do. And uh, which is a funny thing because that's a, a, there's just something about that. Like on the Maslow hikery, like we are still this physically bound being that we stub our toes. We have headaches. We have all this stuff. No matter how enlightened we feel. Yeah we don't escape that. And that's why in like Buddhism, it's like sickness, old age and death. It's like starting point because it's like, why is that important to remember? Because then it says, well, the time I have is precious, you know, and what am I going to do with that? Um, And so for me, it's, it's one of the best gateways, you know, or it's the most common gateway. So that's why I bring it up, you know? Well, and particularly for men, I mean, this is oftentimes a gateway to (laughs) something like a midlife crisis, you know, and I think that that's often (laughs) the result of hitting that wall. I mean, you are suddenly confronted with mortality. I mean, you start realizing like, holy shit, I'm going to die someday, you know, and you really, really start to feel into that and what the sort of the, the, the consequences are for the rest of your life, your relationships, your legacy, you know, everything yes, that your life right. has been building to is all of a sudden, you know, sort of here it is. It's right in front of me. I, you know what I mean? I've yeah. got a limited number of days. It's entirely possible. I've got more days behind me than I have in front of me. Yeah, 100%. And that is going to create, you know, again, this sort of crisis moment where, you know, that's either going to lead you to a total breakdown or a breakthrough. Um, I yeah. think more often than not, both. I mean, you kind of oscillate between the two. Until, something has to break down for something to get free. That's right. Until yeah. some of these new wisdoms can actually find traction and take root and, you know, and, and sort of begin to proliferate through the rest of your system. But until then, yeah. it's, a, it's a brutal process because, um, you know, you just, you just kind of start watching yourself fall apart. And, yeah. Uh, it's always a question of like, what are you going to do in those moments? Like you said, yeah. so like, it's very common see like the, the guy having a midlife crisis and then goes in one direction right and yep. and doesn't don't help himself so i think like it's a rich opportunity you know like if find ourselves in that moment at least for me it's like oh okay then they clear something out like something breaks down like you're saying you know like let go of something shake it up and then like okay now i can drop into what's more important what's really important whereas before it was harder to touch into that because there wasn't something nudging me you know um some illusion that i was maintaining (laughs) that my days aren't numbered (laughs) even as much as we practice as much as we practice meditating i've been meditating two decades plus you know and on all those buddhist teachings everything like that but it's a different thing when you taste it more and more and more and more directly whether because of a spontaneous you know unpredictable event in your life or just the inevitability of old age you know it's different that's right well and that's that's sort of the interesting thing ryan is that you know when it comes to something like intellectual humility i can actually see sort of this just as we're talking i can kind of see this process where you know as we begin to be confronted by our physical challenges and our physical mortality (laughs) and all of that our, our limitations sometimes we overcompensate for that we we, yeah. we sort of, you know what i mean right. we sort of we sort of take the arrogance that we had placed in our body for a certain period of time and we sort of move it over somewhere into our intellectual confidence yeah and that can be oftentimes just as as blinding and that's yeah. we'll talk you know a little bit today about what yeah. intellectual humility actually looks like um but it's interesting to me that that you know we can have this sort of ground up process where our physical sort of deterioration, <laughs> the, the inevitability of our mortality, all of that kind of can trickle up 
into mm. a more sort of uh, intellectual or epistemic humility. But the same is also true with the spiritual humility. I mean, if we cultivate that, um, that yeah. can also kind of trickle down and that can yeah. sort of keep us, us regulated. Yeah. And yeah. I think this is one of the reasons why it's important to think about these in terms of, you know, these big sort of life stages that we that we go through both, mm -hmm. you know, sequentially, you know, I mean, chronologically, we go from body to mind to, you know, to spirit um, throughout our lives. But, you know, also the simultaneity of that, like here we are in our middle age, we can yeah. practice body, we can practice our our intellects, we can practice our, our spiritual humility all sort of at the same time yeah. simultaneously. And I think there's a value to that. You know, it brings up um, everything you just said about um, the views that we hold. So in Buddhism, we talk about the view, you know, of mm -hmm. it's like, how do we see reality? Like from a, at least a conceptual point, even if it's not our experience, how do we view practice? And that greatly influences. So in spiritual humility, you know, the views we start with can be really, um, limiting or freeing you know mm. uh, around humility so we see plenty of versions of spirituality where the starting view is one that's not going to lend itself well to to being humble but of course again and it, obviously i i'm been referencing buddhism a lot but simply because of its flavor you know the, the four noble truths just start right off the bat it's like listen life is full of suffering you're gonna get old maybe hopefully <laughs> and you're gonna be sick and you're gonna die it's like that view is like well geez thanks for the pep talk you know <laughs> so that's that but we see lots of different versions of spirituality now where it's just like you know you could become a god essentially you know and it's like well okay well then that's gonna be tough that's gonna hurt more later you know at some point so this just brings up the fact to me is like pay attention to our views like in whatever we're bringing into whatever practice, you know, in the, in the broad scope of integral practice, what are, what's our views? Because those are embedded, you know, and really hard to shake free of them. It shapes how we practice. So that's yeah. right. That's right. Well, another, you know, another thing, and maybe this will segue us into, into talking about some of the intellectual humility stuff. Yeah. But, um, you know, one of the things that you were talking about was sort of the, the relationship between um, confidence and humility mm -hmm. and it kind mm -hmm. of feels like they're opposites right but i want to suggest that they're not really totally. opposites we no. can actually tease these qualities apart we can we can we can actually practice deliberately practice um the cultivation of a a a confident humility yeah and that's what i want us to talk about today because there's a difference between sort of the intrapersonal confidence which is you know, my, my sense of my, my self-esteem, my, my sense of my own strengths and my awareness of my weaknesses, my capacity to rise to the occasion, my commitment to, you know, learning and growing and awakening yeah. and all of that. I mean, all of that gives me sort of this inner resolve, this inner confidence. And at, I can hold that at the same time that I hold an epistemic humility where I can remind myself of how little I actually know, yeah. you know? I mean, when I, when, when, when we consider all the things that there are to be known, yeah. <laughs> I occupy I a very small bubble. You occupy another bubble. Fortunately, my bubble and your bubble can intersect and that can expand, you know, sort of the territory of our knowledge. But I think the point here is that, that there, there comes a point in our lives where we need to begin to recognize that we are just a single cosmic address within an infinitely yeah. vast yeah. cosmic neighborhood. Yeah. And as a result, we can only enact 
you know, reality one slice at a time. That's and so, that slice is so always important. going to be limited. That's so important. I think, you know, thinking about like, we've talked about how like green is like pre-integral uh, kind mm-hmm. of thing, like this connection. There's something about that, what you just said there that I think is really important for integral folks is like that something about that evolving is like that recognition to me of like how, like, even though there's this grand map and that we can pay attention and be aware of all these different interweaving simultaneity things rising, you know, like we are only one person and therefore we need each other actually. Therefore, you know, and there's no separating, you know, each other, but like to just acknowledge that and say like, okay, I can only do so much. So what am I going to do? What's most important? You know, if we talk about what's mine to do kind of thing. Um, But that's really important. I think in the integral community, because otherwise it's just like, man, yeah. big ego and like I, i'm gonna hold the whole entire map and try to pay attention to everything and then it's just exhausting on a, on an actual personal level to, to try to do that but it is kind of humbling to be like well i cannot actually do 20 different practices at, right. uh, at a time to become superhuman right <laughs> i could do that when i was 25 and not when i'm 45 <laughs> yeah i could pretend to do it <laughs> i yeah, could right. i could write out the list and believe myself yeah <laughs> that, I, that i was gonna do that i literally have that list over here I still, I I kept it. It's on my shelf so I can look at it sometimes and laugh at myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's hilarious. It's seriously like two pages. I wrote down two pages of practices that Stuart Davis later uh, graded as an F. (laughs) You write on my, you write on my journal. (laughs) Well, that's what you get for letting Stuart Davis read your journal. I know, I know, (laughs) but I love it. You know, and actually a little bit more though, what you just said about like confidence and humility going together. I saw an interesting little, tweet thread from our friend Vince Vicori Horn mm. and uh, somebody had treated this tweeted growing increasingly wary of people who exhibit certainty so it's like thing about like be willing to question yourself and there's yep. humility there and then Vince uh, provided a counterpoint growing increasingly wary of people who can question their certainty but then won't take a moral stand when it matters so there's like a confidence so it's like this integration it wasn't like an either or thing That's you know right. it's just like yeah, how can we show up confidently because things matter, you know, and how do we remain humble and open and recognize all of what we don't know? And that's like a practice, you know, it's a practice of like doing that. And we're not always going to be <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, even right. if we try to do that, like, oh, this time I'm going to question more. Ah, no, I needed to confidently take a step forward. Oh, no, I should have taken a step back. You know, as we just do our best, but yeah, usually that's the dilemma is like going back and forth between these two things, like question everything or be super confident, like, right. you know, one right. way or the other. Yep. Guess what, guys? You can have both. You can have that cake and eat it too. Yeah. It feels more fluid, you know, like that that's way right. to be able to respond like that and, and hold right. both. Oh, and then there was a follow-up tweet. I forget. I don't know what the quote was from, but it was like, um, not knowing doesn't mean you don't know. And I don't remember who said it. Hmm. Maybe maybe it was Suzuki Roshi or somebody, but somebody tweeted that. Again, it's the playing with something else of like taking something that we have like as a normal, simple kind of dichotomy and, you know, unraveling and saying, well, it's not so simple. The lived experience is not so simple. <laughs> well, I mean, we can sort of zoom that all the way out and again, talk yeah. about that sort of on yeah, the yeah. level of spiritual humility, because, you know, I think that anyone who has been engaged in a spiritual practice for any meaningful amount of time, has come to at least a trickle of insight that tells them that all of this is play, all of this is illusion to begin with. So even the things that we take, you know, as as being as solid as solid can be, 
You know, anytime we feel like there is just solid ground beneath our feet. Well, guess what, guys? That's actually part of the illusion. That's kind of part of the mm. trap, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think that, that that sort of spiritual wisdom brings with it a humility that sort of acts as a constant reminder that all of this is as substantial as like tissue paper. You know what I mean? That all of this is fleeting and literally everything that you have ever loved can disappear in, in a moment, in a moment without any provocation. Yeah. And, and there's something beautiful and perfect about that. And sort of, I think the spiritual dilemma is, is, is finding peace with that. Right. Yeah. And that requires an enormous amount of humility. Yeah. And so that's, yeah, you're right. I mean, like a lot of times in classical kind of awakening paths, you know, that's where it's starting. And like something like Buddhism, like start right there to just dislodge that attachment, you know, and, and to wake ourselves up, like, listen, it's fleeting, it's groundless, but you know, we can take it, you can, often you have to take it even further because sometimes people can have that realization, you know, and then, and then what becomes certain is something like emptiness, you know, like yeah. emptiness is certain, like uh, non-duality, whatever it might be. There's like, ah, that's certain. And then, and then you go to the doctor and they're like, you got to have bifocals <laughs> or your cholesterol is way too damn high, right. you know, things like the, you know, so like, it's like an, it's ongoing practice. Like the, 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 the desire to find an endpoint is continual and really subtle. Like that's why it's more like layers, even if you can have a breakthrough experience and a deep you know, letting go of, into selflessness and emptiness, non-duality, you know, still you can find ways in which you, certainty is there, you know, the background that we uh, uh, attach ourselves to. Um, yep. And anyways, yeah. It's, well, uh, I've got some, I've got some pretty pictures to share. Yeah. And a lot like of this pictures. is coming, a lot of, yeah. And a lot of this is coming from a book that I, I, I just started reading. Well, let me give you a little background here. So about a week or two ago, I happened upon an article on Substack, which you know has some interesting stuff sometimes. Some, some really great writers go over to Substack oftentimes. And this was an article that was compiling some information from, from a handful of books that I found really, really interesting and really germane to a lot of the things that I was just sort of thinking about uh, in integral land anyway. And so this, this really lit me up and I, I looked for the, 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 the author of, of the article. Unfortunately, with Substack, there's a lot of sort of anonymous stuff out there. So, you know, the guy who wrote the article was just some dude named John. I don't even have a last name. And I was like, okay, well, I can't really cite this stuff. So let me, let me you know, try to find the sources and dig into there. So I, I, I picked up this book, uh, which is called Think Again by Adam Grant. Uh, which I've, I've only just begun reading, but it is, man, it, it speaks to me. And I think it speaks to some of the natural qualities of a healthy integral mind that I'm not sure have been fully and properly explicated for people. So, uh, you know, we oftentimes talk about integral thinking, vision, logic, you know, things like that without really getting into, well, what are the qualities of that? What are sort of, you know, like we can talk about critical thinking, for example, I can tell you what critical thinking is. You can even teach critical thinking as, as sort of a methodology. What is integral thinking? You know what I mean? What is our version of that where we can actually give you sort of, you know, here's a set, here's a paradigm, a set of practices. And if you do these practices, you're going to feel the quality of your own thought processes improving. That's, that's, I, you know, I think there's a lot of work to be done there in terms of, 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 you know, wrapping some sense around that. This book, I think is one of, one of the sources that is again, sort of implicitly Mm. doing that. And it's called think again. And it's about, Again, it's about exactly the conversation we're having right now. It's about recognizing 
where in our lives we are leading with too much certainty and to invite ourselves to constantly engage in a process of rethinking, rethinking our core assumptions, rethinking our views, rethinking how we apply our values in the world. Because oftentimes we get caught in this, well, I mean, we're talking about Buddhism. I'm, I, I think of the story of the Buddha who was a prince in a palace. And you know, when he lived in this palace, all of the suffering, all of the worst elements that create humility in our lives were kept away from him, right? Mm -hmm. Until one day he saw sick people and dying people. And well, I kind of think, you know, in a lot of ways, our culture is sort of set up like that. Like our culture is set up in so many ways to preserve as much comfort as possible and create as much distance from this sort of mundane suffering. You know what I mean? Like we go to the grocery mm. store. We don't, we don't have to kill an animal for meat. We go to a grocery mm. store where it's nicely packaged in plastic and we take it mm. home and we eat it. And we don't think about, you know, the actual death of the animal that is, that is feeding us today. Things like that. I feel like in a lot of ways, we are all sort of living in Buddha's palace before, mm. <laughs> you know, before mm. the crash, before mm. the dark night. And, mm. you know, I think that's, 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 that's also true in terms of sort of the little kingdoms that we create in our own minds, right? Mm -hmm. We tend to have sort of overly solid sets of conclusions and ideas and processes. And, and it can be hard to penetrate that sometimes. It can be hard to, to sort of take a step back and again, question some of the presuppositions and assumptions and so forth that went into constructing your view in the first place. So this book does a really, really good job, I think, of sort of pulling the rug underneath that and bringing us into a more uh, humble relationship with our own intellect, which means a more humble relationship with how we actually end up engaging with each other and enacting each other. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. It actually yeah. leads to sort of a, a, a quieter wisdom in a certain kind of way that can be a little bit tricky to put words on. But but mm -hmm. that's just sort of the feeling I have. Mm -hmm. So maybe one of the things that we want to start with is is uh, this is a, a term that um, I think a lot of us are familiar with by now. Some people aren't. So we'll describe it. But it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Mm -hmm. And for those who aren't familiar, here's here's the Wikipedia definition of, uh, of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias in which people with low ability at a task overestimate their ability. It's related to the cognitive bias of illusory superiority and comes from the inability of people to recognize their lack of ability. In other words, people don't know how dumb they are. And that's especially true of smart people, which we'll get to in just a second. David Dunning, one of the researchers in you know, the Dunning-Kruger effect, uh, one of his quotes that people love repeating is the first rule of the Dunning-Kruger Club is you don't know you're a member of the Dunning-Kruger Club. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's a great one. I don't have awesome. a, uh, I don't actually don't have a quote from Justin Kruger. I think he's kind of like Teller, the dude from Penn and Teller, who's, oh, who's yeah, always quiet. Funny. That's that's my impression of him. So I've got a graphic here I want to share that sort of illustrates what the Dunning-Kruger effect is. Here's sort of a, a satirical version of the Dunning-Kruger effect. <laughs> so the idea being that, you know, you got confidence on, on one axis and you've got your knowledge and your skills on the other. And we all sort of start out with on this big hump. 
And in this graph, that's called Mount Stupid. And that's mm-hmm. basically, Mount Stupid is the equivalent of, I think most of us has, have known the person like this, like the person who takes a psychology 101 course in their freshman year of college and then comes out thinking they know absolutely everything about the human mind possible. You have this like dramatic increase of confidence that comes with sort of scratching the surface in a topic area, right? And then for most people on most issues, that's where we stay. We stay right there at the peak of Mount Stupid. And we Mm -hmm. think we, I mean, we think this is it, man. This is this, I've done my internet research. You know what I mean? Like this is, this is all I need to know. And there is a lot of resistance, natural resistance to moving into that second piece where it's sort of like a dark night of the mind in a certain kind of way. Here it's called the Valley of Despair. And that's where wisdom starts to come in because one of the perennial definitions of wisdom, again, is knowing exactly how much you don't know. Mm-hmm. Realizing how much of reality exists beyond your biases and your filters and, you know, sort of all of the, the accumulation of experiences that causes you to enact reality in a particular way. And then once we sort of hit that rock bottom, right? And it's a painful, again, it feels like a dark night. It's like, oh, I just don't know anything anymore that's when we begin sort of that long slow climb up what it calls the slope of enlightenment towards the plateau of sustainability um i love these sort of fantasy terms that they use for (laughs) these different pieces of the terrain but i love this graphic because i do think that in so many ways the majority of us on the majority of issues are still sitting on mount stupid Now, there's probably a few areas in our lives where we are, you know, at least in the valley or we're climbing the slope, right? But I think that when it comes to most of the ways that we enact this world, we sort of have an unearned overconfidence that I think is oftentimes reinforced by the whatever social media bubbles we find ourselves in. And really, I think one of the tricks here, it's interesting because whenever people talk about Dunning-Kruger, they immediately think of other people who have it immediately it's like oh yeah no that's the anti-vaxxers or if you're a vaxxer you'd be like oh no that's you know the people who just believe everything anthony fauci says hook line and sinker so everyone thinks that everyone else is on the other side of the dunning kruger effect and very rarely do we see people you know sort of taking it as an invitation to self-reflect um and to and to you know sort of see where they are Mm-hmm. on that in, in any particular issue. Another thing that I think happens is, again, because we want to other these things, because oftentimes we lack the, the humility to sort of, you know, self-report and self-assess and see where we are on that. I think other times too, we assume that Dunning-Kruger is something that only applies to people who are like, let's just say in a lower altitude than we are, mm-hmm. or maybe less awakened or less developed, what have you, dumber in a way. (laughs) I think actually there's a lot of evidence that the opposite is true, that actually the more accomplished you get in in a particular specialization, let's say, there's an enormous amount of confidence that comes with that increasing competency. The problem is that confidence then gets sort of misapplied to other areas. It's like there's a halo effect where because we, we're so good at doing this one thing and we feel so confident that we're so good at doing this one thing that we sort of assume that that same intelligence and confidence can be applied to other aspects of our lives where we really don't have enough information um, to be nearly as confident as we feel ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is an effect that doesn't just happen to those people over there um, who believe that thing or who are at that altitude or whatever. 
The Dunning-Kruger effect, I think, is I think 95% of people at integral stages are experiencing the Dunning-Kruger effect, again, in some aspect of their lives. And I, I'm hoping that this show is, again, just an invitation for us to pause, take a step back, and reflect on sort of where is it that I'm placing my certainty? Where do I have an, a, a healthy sense of uncertainty? And Ryan, this is, mm -hmm. we talked about certainty and uncertainty in a previous episode. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I invite people to check that out too. But I think that's the opportunity of even learning, you know, a concept like Dunning-Kruger is it gives you, uh, it gives you that space, right? You get this little gap where you get to self-reflect, self-report, self-assess and say, you know what? Yeah, I sort of suffer from this in all sorts of ways. And, uh, you know, maybe one of the things I need to do is increase my, my um, you know, find better tools, find better ways to understand whatever it is I'm trying to understand, and maybe ease off on some of the epistemic arrogance that I've been carrying around with myself. Yeah, this is um, one uh, comment on YouTube. Uh, somebody was wanting to know if we would talk about shadow work around humility. And actually, this relates to the Dunning-Kruger uh, yes. conversation. I, because... I think all of this is shadow work in, a certain, in, in an important way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there is something true there in the foundational sense, you know, especially like from a rational, ra uh, you know, orienting from rationality, you know, there's going to be like just a linear logical kind of progression that makes a lot of sense with general learning, you know. And so that's really important to pay attention to that, like, hey, this is kind of a, a natural cycle that can repeat. And I would argue that is going to be different every time it like it's not just something that is like always the same you know like uh we talk about the phases of insight at buddhist geeks for like a cycle that we can go through over and over you know or if like seeking and effort and breakthrough and disillusionment equanimity and completion but the second time you go through that it's definitely not the same as the first time like there's wisdom that happens the second time so but yeah seen as a cycle but yeah a lot of times when i think about this beyond knowing that and saying and realizing at least once that like, oh yeah, I can see how that cycle played out with respect to this area of knowledge, you know, like I didn't know anything, you know, and of course, or I thought I really knew a lot and found out I didn't. Okay. Yeah. Um, but then it's like a lot of shadow work, you know, and I've just made me think of like one technique uh, from the realization process where, you know, everything is starting with inhabiting the body and then also attuning to qualities in the body that are like foundational to our being um and one of them is like knowing and we often attune to the quality of intellect or knowing in our head doesn't mean that that's the only place in our body we experience that quality but a foundational quality it's not about knowing any particular thing it's knowing itself a raw right. quality of knowing and you know i can have in my head and i can attune to my own quality of knowing now if i do that and i feel like it's really hard or like the internal space of my head feels small or that it's closed off at the front or something, then that's an indication that, hey, there may be a pattern of shutting down my raw ability of knowing that then leads to me, either me being not confident in myself or compensating to try to reclaim yeah. that lost sense of knowing. In which case, what the work there is to like practice inhabiting, see what's going on there and then work with the content of that experience. Like, was, was there a time in my childhood where that first happened, where I shut down my knowing because a, a parent was, you know, chastised me and said, like, you don't know anything, you know, or something like that, right? And so 
shadow work is incredibly important in that sense. And that's why I would say around this knowing intellectual humility is like, yeah, where do we experience um, our own knowing, raw quality of knowing, and then potentially power to, you know, there's all kinds of things, just feeling into the whole spectrum of our being and seeing where we feel um, constricted and limited such that we then overcompensate habitually in our knowing. So that's just one technique. And obviously there's a bunch of therapeutic techniques that we can use to then work with the content of our experience. But as like, as far as like a raw practice that really can, is something that I think a lot of people are familiar with an integral community of like basic meditation. That is a wonderful entry point in my, in my experience to like, kind of just feel like, oh yeah, when I'm talking intellectually, I'm not actually present in my whole body. I'm kind of limited here and here. And this is the typical way that I engage with people. Okay. Yep. So yeah, yeah. no, it's, that's, that's, that's beautifully said, Ryan. I think, I think, I think you absolutely nailed it. And, you know, particularly, you know, when we're talking about things like epistemic humility and we're talking about, you know, trying to do a better job of tracking our own blind spots and confirmation biases and noticing the ways that we seek out information that um, resonates with or confirms some pre-existing belief that we already have. I mean, just the simple act of, of trying to notice that and bring more awareness to it. Guess what, buddy? You're doing shadow work right now. Yeah. I think so much of this conversation, particularly around epistemic humility, this is sort of a one-two punch of growing up and cleaning up. You know what I yeah. mean? We're yeah. Trying I, I was, to, yeah. I was just thinking the same thing as you were saying yep. that, that the growing up part there, which is really something that... <clears throat> a good thing for anybody who's like actually coming from an integral level is that's where a really deep appreciation of developmental humility can come on, on track because it can be recognized or whatever developmental model you want to use. There's a point in which we can recognize development itself as like this very real thing that happens. And then just because the recognition is there. So this is two step mm-hmm. humility. One is just like, there's a letting go. They're saying like, yeah, it's not just that we're, we're all operating on the same level and just those idiots over there won't get on, on my level thing. It's like, yep. then there's a level of like, okay, how do I engage? Even though I know that, what's the most skillful way to engage people who are coming from different developmental levels such that I can love that level, love that person and yes. try to help them clean up, help them grow up. And I'd say, well, I don't, I don't know that many people who I think are like, top notch at that thing. You know, like, I think we're all figuring that out. Someone like Diana Hamilton comes to mind where I'm like, I'm like, she's one person. If somebody knows how to do that really, really well, I think she probably does. And there's going to be other people out there, but like, that's a different level of enacting on integral levels, but that's, that makes me humble in a certain way of being like, okay, I see that. But I'm like, man, I don't know how to, I don't know. What's the most effective way to actually engage somebody from a different developmental level, especially around stuff like plot politics. It's different when you're talking about like, kids and trying to help them learn we usually feel comfortable right like helping our kids learn we know they're they're, yep. they're not operating on the levels and we're cool with that we love them and say like oh how can i help you <laughs> yeah yeah comes to adults we're like ask screw but you that, that that's sort of an ongoing perennial question is like how do i talk to grandma about this stuff right or how, like yeah. how do i <laughs> how do i maintain a relationship with my crazy uncle who kind of fell down this rabbit hole and you know i love the guy but jesus he's nuts and i don't know how to communicate with him anymore yeah or, you know, it doesn't have to be extreme like that. You know, like for no, me, an ongoing simple. issue I had was like, like, man, I, you know, my spiritual life means so much to me. And I can recognize how much of that I inherited from my grandmother, who's like a hardcore 
amber Protestant fundamentalist. And yet I can appreciate how much of my own spiritual trajectory I've inherited for her. Man, I just want to like be able to communicate with her in a way that she knows I have a relationship with God and Uh, I don't need to frame it in a way that, you know, freaks her out, you know, which which it would if I just like talked about integrally with her. So, you know, for me, one of the shorthands that I've come up with is, is ignore the views, but include the values, speak to the underlying values that are beneath these views and animating these views. Like, you know, there's so many people who have views that I'm just like, that is a really fucking stupid view when I'm in one of my more arrogant, you know, places. that's just a stupid fucking view. You know, it kind of drives you crazy. But if you can take that second beat and say, okay, what are the values that are either, you know, that are probably unaddressed right now that is animating this view in the first place. Like, where is this view actually emerging from? Well, chances are we have a lot more to agree about on the level of values than we do on the level of view. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. But, yeah. but that requires humility. That re- I mean, if we're <clears throat> saying things like, oh, that you know, you're so green or, oh, you're so amber, so I can write off anything that you say from this point out because I've put you into this color-coded, you know, box on a, you know, on a piece of paper somewhere. And now I can just kind of shove you aside. Well, that's, you're doing it wrong. You're doing yeah. it wrong because there are wisdoms that emerge and wisdoms, by the way, that are lost as we progress from one stage to the other. Um, that are still being retained and maintained by other yeah. people that we need. We need this stuff. Yeah, we yeah, need yeah. The earlier wisdoms. We need the full well, spectrum we, <laughs> anatomy of human civilization, right? Yeah, we've talked about that in other episodes too. I think like in terms of like, like you said, uh, find the values or relate to that, appreciate them. We have to appreciate that and recognize those values exist within ourselves. Like if we right. truly have de- de- developed and evolved, those are part of us. So like an amber, there's values in it socialized mind it's just called socialized mind it's like i don't care if you're an integral community you're part of a socialized right. mind around integral and that's cool because that's we're wired that way so we're going to be part of groups even if we think or, or actually have the experience of like being able to include other developmental levels when we're hanging out we are hanging on in, in an integral community you know and we just have to own that. So if we can own that in ourselves and say like, yeah, I have all these levels, egocentrism in a good and healthy way, you know, and negative ways. Like we can have all of those. You need an ourselves. ego. Yeah. And we can appreciate that in other people, you know? And I think too, also like, this is this examples of like how we're going to taste that humility and then maybe let ourselves soak in it a little bit, like let it permeate our experience like don't just rush past it like say like ah oh, what does this feel like to to let go and go oh i don't like it matters but i don't know what to do here and i feel a little dumb but also i'm gonna show up like what does that feel like um but then and, you know we talk about inhabiting other people's perspectives you know if we, if, i think politics are a good one because it brings up like very pointed you know experiences mm-hmm. of arrogance or um you know lack of humility or underconfidence is that like, you know, thinking about like, for example, in the United States, what a Amber oriented community at large is experiencing, man, they're probably experiencing a lot of scary thoughts within of like their way of their worldview and their things crumbling and being taken away and getting feistier. And like, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to respond to it and do something about that. But I can imagine like, man, must be scary within. Like if we cut down through all the surface level stuff, there's somebody scared underneath all of that. And what is it like to be scared in a very basic way? Oh, it's not very fun to be scared. Like at a very fundamental level, 
okay, if I can identify with that and feel that, okay, now how am I going to engage? It doesn't mean I'm still not going to be like, sorry, the way you're acting out there because you're scared isn't acceptable. Like we're not going to do that. So it's a balance there. And also I would say like, you know, when we think about this in terms of humility, a lot of times the integral level, I feel like in the integral community, there's a lot of like just grandiose ideas, like it's too complicated. So it's yeah. like somebody going in real life, like into the kitchen and be like, can you make me a PB and J? Like just let's, let's make each other a PB and J's and say, and feel like we actually made a PB and J. Okay. Now let's, we'll go up, but you're like trying to do Michelin three-star, you know, amazing, crazy uh, dining experience. It's like, but in an act, it was like, we don't have the fundamentals down, which requires right. <laughs> some humility, you know, about doing these things. And one other last thing I want to say about the family example, feeling into the multifaceted dimension of, of humility here and shadow work. For some folks, it may be like the humility of letting go of the relationship or of the nature of the relationship. So I'm just saying it could be a lot of different things for people. Like one, maybe like, oh, I'm going to allow myself to get closer to this person and relate to them where they're at. And other people may be like, I'm going to let go of feeling like I have to. And it's really hard to let that go and just say like, it is what it is, you know, mm -hmm. like, so everybody's family dynamics and stuff can be really, really different. But in all of it, usually there's some humility of like, what should I do? You know, what am I doing here? What do I want to do? What would be the best for myself or them for us it's not always really obvious you know yeah no, yeah beautifully said no i totally agree well i've got a couple other graphics yeah. here because you know the, the other question i want to return to the point that we we're making that yeah. you know confidence and humility are not opposites yeah it's actually more like a polarity yeah. um so i actually have a couple of graphs or graphics i want to share that i think sort of demonstrates that so this first one again it comes from uh this book that i mentioned earlier and it is talking about the confidence sweet spot. Hey, look, quadrants. Hey, we like quadrants here. Yeah, except of this graphic, we don't want all four quadrants. We only want <laughs> one of these quadrants. Um, so on the left side, uh, on the y-axis, you've got secure versus insecure. So confident or not. Yeah. And then on the, uh, the top axis, you've got certain or uncertain. Now, the idea here is that the goal, right, what we should be aspiring to is moving into that lower right quadrant where we have an interior confidence, we have an interior sense of security, but we have a healthy epistemic uncertainty. And that mm -hmm. brings us into a sort of confident humility, mm -hmm. which again, feels like a contradiction, but it's not. That's the beautiful thing about this is it's really, really not. Because you have the confidence to constantly rethink, to update your map, as you need to. I mean, Jesus, that sounds pretty damn integral, right? And to be able to change your mind as new facts, new perspectives, new ways of looking at the world are brought into your awareness. Mm -hmm. If we don't have that interior security, that interior confidence that like, you know, I'm capable of putting this together, even if I'm getting some shit wrong sometimes. Mark Fischler likes to say, it's not about being right. It's about getting it right. And that to me, I think is a really wonderful experience of that interior confidence coupled with an epistemic humility. Now, yeah. one thing I don't like about this graphic, this way of presenting it is it makes it seem like, again, that lower right quadrant, like that's the destination we want to sort of rush ourselves into however possible. But I think there's a, a you know, another way to think about it, which uh, is represented here. What I did is I took these same ideas and turned it into a polarity map. 
the idea here being, again, uh, inner confidence and intellectual humility are not opposites. They are a polarity to be managed and to be integrated. And just to go through the steps here, you know, we can start with, uh, you know, let's look at the top left first. So that's what a, that's a positive inner confidence. You've got a healthy self-regard, a growth-based mindset. You have an inner confidence in your strengths and an awareness of your limitations. You have a capacity for honesty and accurate self-reporting. So basically a well-developed intrapersonal line of development. Uh, we have uh, confidence in our inner capacity to understand and to perform. Now, what happens when that confidence gets sort of decoupled from the humility is we start sinking into the lower left. We start moving into an epistemic over-certainty. This is where the Dunning-Kruger effect really starts to come online. We start to develop a sort of a blind arrogance and a resistance to change. Attacks on our knowledge are often perceived as personal attacks, right? We so identify with sort of the, mm -hmm. the, 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 the artifices of our intellectual understandings that, you know, to, to, to question our intellectual understanding is to question ourselves as a human being. I see a lot of people getting caught in that trap. Uh, and then there's a need to be sort of the smartest person in the room, right? But then we correct for that, which brings us up into the upper right side of the polarity map, which is a healthy epistemic uncertainty. We have the wisdom to remember how little we actually know. We have a curiosity to engage with other perspectives. We are open to changing our minds, changing our strategies, changing our maps as we need to and as new information comes in. We are uh, holding knowledge and beliefs and our identities and constructs and our thoughts as lightly as we possibly can. This is something I often say about integral. This stuff is so incredibly important to me. And that's why I feel like I need to hold it so lightly. You know what I mean? I need to bring humor to it. I need to, you know, if I take it as seriously as the sort of arrogant part of me wants to, I know that that's only going to get in the way right? That's going to be an obstacle. So the more important something is, the more you have to hold it lightly. And then also it seeks people, uh, people who, who are practicing this sort of healthy epistemic uncertainty, they seek people who are more intelligent, more awakened, or more developed than ourselves. And hey, that's my, been my whole career track for the last 20 years right there. Mm. That's how I keep myself honest is I like, mm. I try to throw myself out of my own depth and I'm mm. forever out of my own depth. This seat I'm sitting in right now, I feel like the ceiling is way above me. You know what I mean? I'm so completely out of my depth, just talking to you and talking to Mark and talking to Ken and, you know, mm -hmm. talking to these brilliant, brilliant people who are constantly expanding and helping me unfold my own map. Now, when that humility starts to get disconnected from our confidence, that brings us into the lower right section of the polarity map. We start to develop a debilitating doubt. Uh, we start operating from a sense of lack or a sense of insecurity or a sense of incompetence. This is where things like anxiety and fear and imposter syndromes this has been one of my big challenges over the years. Uh, imposter mm. syndromes. This is where this starts to creep in. Uh, we're we find ourselves constantly questioning our own abilities. Mm. And in fact, our, our sense of self-worth is often dependent upon how other people validate us or, mm. or not, right? Yeah. It's a terribly insecure place to be. And that's where you have a little bit too much of that, that humility right. and not enough of the confidence. So the goal here is to integrate our confidence and our humility so that we can stay on the top side of this polarity map as much as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. What I like about framing it as a polarity like this is that it's a reminder that this kind of confident humility is not an end state. 
It's not a destination we eventually make it to and then we you know, make our camp there. In fact, this is a dance. It is an ongoing process. We have to constantly integrate and reintegrate and manage these polarities when it comes, you know, and, and, and these polarities can present themselves to us very differently depending on if we're looking at politics or if we're looking at, you know, let's say our own integral practice or if we're, what have you, any issue, any topic, any sort of dimension of reality that we're engaging at any given moment, we're going to have a different sort of relationship between mm -hmm. these two poles that we have to manage and keep an eye on and hopefully mm -hmm. integrate in an ongoing mm -hmm. way. And there's never an end state. There's never a point where like, oh, finally I've integrated. I'm, I'm done with mm -hmm. that. It is right. a moment to moment, day to day ongoing process. And I think framing it as a polarity um, is a nice reminder of that. Yeah. And you know, um, one thing I'll add to all that mix there. Thanks for whipping all those graphics up. And I, I liked your uh, expanded version there, you know, it helps paint that picture of mm -hmm. like them being the spectrum here, you know, and something that's ongoing. Um, also, if we take that through the developmental lens that like, if we ask somebody to further describe, well, what does that look like? You know, all these things, that answer could be very different, you know, for example, uh, like Amber level of what humility looks like, you know, and something that somebody from a rational level where they're actually being humble mm -hmm. doesn't sound humble to Amber level. Like, so to question the existence of God, you know, like a, mm -hmm. a sky God, you know, kind of thing, very different. Right. But there is a genuine humility that exists in an Amber level of like, what does humility look like? You know? but it's very different at a rational level. And even at a rational level, you can look and see, find arrogance at, at the rational level, even if that person is being humble, there's like built in, this is built in, I think, in develop, into developmental levels of like each level adds something and points out something that's from right. the previous level. So that's one of the ways it, it, it progresses for me, you know, and um, like, what is it like to go from like a more rational and self-authoring level to, you know, self-transformative systemic way of looking at things or an integral level, you know, it's like, ah, what these things mean is, is different right. too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And I love the orange versus amber kind of, cause that's a perfect, that's usually really obvious. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a really obvious one. It's one of the major cultural fault lines that we have in the world right now. Yeah. And, and, you know, as integralists, I think we probably, if, if, if we can be so humble, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we probably feel like we've got a decent grasp on how we would like those conversations to go, well, you know, as opposed to how they typically go. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that Amber and Orange, they're going to have very, very, again, different views. They're going to have yeah. very different views that are animating their sense of certainty. Orange is going to have more certainty in like the scientific method, for example, mm -hmm. and Amber is going to have a lot more certainty in their views of God, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Now, there are underlying values that can connect these two different people. There can be a mutual appreciation of sacredness, for example. It's not like sacredness goes away at orange. I mean, oftentimes it's kind of driven out because of various cultural changes. shadows, right? But th there is a change, but there's an underlying universality to the sense and appreciation of sacredness that we can yeah. perceive in the world. Right. right. Yep. For orange, maybe it becomes more of a sacred naturalism. Right? naturalism it becomes more of a usually. deist kind of rather than theism. Right. Yeah. Um, but there is an opportunity to connect like, oh, man, we both see wonder and beauty and goodness and awe yeah. 
And you know what I mean? There are common qualities. Now you describe it as, as sort of the features of your personal God. Okay. I'm not going to get into that right now. I'm certainly not going to disagree with that because all that's going to do is close down the lines of, of communication between us, but let's apply those values outward. Let's see what happens if mm. we can agree on the level of values and then look outward to what's going on in the world and what's happening between us. And there's much more opportunity to build a bridge and to build a, a genuine mm -hmm. relationship between the two where both perspectives are actually mm -hmm. sort of rewarding each other yeah. they're informing each other like yeah. amber has something orange doesn't amber has something that actually gets lost as we transition to orange and orange has something that hasn't yet emerged for amber i mean there's an opportunity for a beautiful share there which oftentimes you know goes unnoticed and kind of kind of falls away um but that requires you know tremendous humility on on behalf of both people in order to discover that sort of shared space between them mm -hmm. in the first place. Yeah. You know, and it makes me think too, that like that the experience of humility kind of arises naturally in developmental process, you know, where even if, a, you know, obviously like saying it like Amber and even the rational level, like the degree of awareness of development unfolding is not the same as it is later, but you know, their humility arises. It's just like, Oh, I have to change, you know, usually it's relationally motivated a lot of times like breakdowns and familial relationships say like okay i'd rather be in relationship with somebody i care about than hold on to my views which then requires a little bit of flexibility you know and and how people think and that's how you get like mytho rational you know a little 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 combo action it's like all right we can we can exist these two levels can exist together <laughs> I have just found all of this material, again, just so valuable, like immediately beneficial to me. I mean, I'm beginning to look at all the ways that, um, you know, that sometimes I have a little bit too much humility and then that can actually create sort of anxieties and fears and all that. And, you know, I've, a lot of work I've been doing, just doing these shows with you guys over the last couple of years has been me sort of throwing myself into that and trying to, you know, grow that sense of inner confidence. And, you know, it's, it's, it's moved from like here to maybe here and, mm -hmm. you know, eventually we'll get it like up to here maybe. Um, but this book I think has been very valuable for me and I, cool. I encourage other people to check it thanks, out again. It's called uh, think again by Adam Grant. It was a New York times bestseller. Um, so whatever additional clout that <laughs> that brings, there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've been really enjoying it. And just, again, noticing how many things in my own life um, I've been sort of avoiding rethinking. You know what I mean? Yeah. And a lot of that stuff can come out of trauma. A lot of that stuff can come yeah. out of, well, when you're dealing with insecurity, you know, in the first place and you find something you actually like about yourself, it can be hard to, to bring the humility you need to those pieces of yourself. Mm. Even, you know what I mean? It can be hard to yeah. rethink that because it's like, no, this is the one thing I've got, you know? Yeah. Um, and being able to hold that, I think a little bit lightly uh, mm. can be, can be challenging. And then there's people on the other side of the spectrum who, you know, I think we see people um, all the time in the integral community and elsewhere who come from a poverty of confidence, um, which then turns into a, a, I guess, sort of a, they oversteer for it, they overcorrect yeah. for it. And then that creates a sort of a brittleness in terms of how they hold their own intellect and yeah. their own sort of maps of reality. Right. Yeah. And that just goes back to talking about shadow work, you know, where yeah. even though like, integral community obviously we like to talk about the maps they're really useful and and 
and uh, interesting. Um, but then, you know, shadow stuff is still there. And so a lot of there, times it's just like, just working with some of that, you know, and obviously there's just like shadow stuff exists, not just at, in isolated individuals, you know, like it arose out of relational and uh, societal, cultural context. And so, you know, we're having to do all that work together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I would say, Ryan, if you even have the perception that you always have shadow somewhere in your in your system, yeah. if you can maintain that perception, then you've already got a head start on generating exactly this kind of humility. Because only humility is, is you know, that's the only way we can possibly tell ourselves, hey, I've, I'm a little bit broken here, right? Yeah. I've got some more work to do here. I've got, that requires genuine humility. And it requires, again, this developed intrapersonal line. Um, you know, I, I, I always enunciate that carefully so people don't think I'm saying interpersonal line, but yeah. the intrapersonal line, the ability yeah. to look within and to self-report and to, you know, be honest about your own strengths and weaknesses yeah. and so forth. Um, by cultivating that, that, that generates a, a field of humility um, that we can use to navigate some of our blind spots and biases and, and so forth. Well, so even just having the perception that shadow exists for me yep. means that I'm all, I've already begun doing the work yeah, to bring myself into alignment with my humility. Yeah. And the positive uh, way of framing this as well is, you know, and kind of using more language again from the realization process, but it's like that there's more, always opportunities to reclaim more of our wholeness, you know, mm-hmm. to like more of our innate abilities. So that's like the, the, exciting part right because when we look at shadows that like we talked about it's like difficult painful heavy you know it's like ugh, it doesn't sound so great up front compared to like growing up you know growing up sounds exciting like more like or better sewers of the mind yeah but the thing is is like when we talk about knowing it's like well you get to experience more fully your own inherent uh, capacity to know won't that be great so that's why to do the shadow work won't it be great to experience more of your own power, more of your own love, more of your own ability to express yourself, not about the content of your experience, but that innate ability. So like that can be a motivating way of framing it, you know, saying like, oh, well, definitely want to do that. And Judith Blackstone, she says, you know, realization is easy, but the, the this work that we're doing takes, it's a lifetime of like, and everybody has holding patterns and areas of themselves and their being where that's kind of closed off. So we're always working on it. But that's the upside is like, you get more of your own being <laughs> by doing the shadow work. That's right. Beautiful. Well, that was, nice. that was, yeah, that was a good circuit. Um, do we have anything mm-hmm. else we want to say about confidence, humility, whether oh. physical, mental, spiritual? Yeah, I think it's covered a lot of ground here. All right. Well, should we move on to uh, <laughs> a special part of the show? Yeah, um, sure. I hope, I, hope we, I hope we can have a little bit of fun here. Let's, yeah. let's, um, let's, let's take this as an opportunity to practice our humility and to make fun of ourselves a little bit. So I created, actually many years ago, this was probably seven or eight years ago, um, I created this list of integral caricatures, which are really just sort of these broad stereotypes um, of qualities that I've seen, well, you know, mostly in myself, let me own that. (laughs) Most of these that I'm gonna share have been uh, various shades of my own shadow. Um, but also some things that I've perceived, you know, in, in others in the community uh, around me, you know, the integral community around me. Well, I mean, let's be honest, it's probably all just me and none of these are shared by the community, but I'll let you guys be the judge of that. Yeah. Um, so again, I think the opportunity here is uh, to have a little bit of fun. 
to self-reflect and to honestly gauge for ourselves whether or not we have been any of these caricatures and stereotypes uh, during at any point in our integral journey, or if we've really, you know, got this humility practice down, how many of these we might be right now at this very moment. So cool. here we go. Top 10 integral stereotypes. Number one, the Mick integralist. Notice I, uh, my, my uh, Microsoft paint skills as I was creating the Ronald McDonald graphic. Nicely done. I think one of those books has a brief history of most things. Well, well done, my friend. You put some effort into this. <laughs> so the Mick Integralist, what do you get when you combine sophisticated post-metaphysical language with inexperience and fuzzy thinking? In the Royal Dining Hall of Integral Consciousness, this is the fast food window. All the calories with none of that pesky nourishment. Mick integralists use integral theory in simplistic paint by numbers way, reducing the tremendous complexity and elegance of our world to glib generalizations and slogans, spends all of his time labeling and categorizing reality without ever actually saying or doing anything meaningful at all. Mick integralists forget that orienting generalizations are little more than stereotypes, incredibly useful and insightful stereotypes stereotypes nonetheless. McIntegralists are often quick to dismiss anyone or anything that does not cleanly fit into their facile maps of reality. A common phrase to know that you're dealing with a McIntegralist is something like, you're so green. <laughs> nice. Number two, the integral know-it-all. The problem with learning a theory of everything is that it can fool you into thinking that you actually know everything, much to the chagrin of friends, family, and anyone unfortunate enough to be sitting next to you on an airplane. Know-it-alls use a scaffolded Cliff's Notes understanding of reality as a substitute for almost all genuine knowledge. This is often accompanied by an unsavory and unearned arrogance that will eventually get them beaten up by a graduate student. <laughs> <laughs> Common phrase. Um, you hear this all the time, verbatim, Ryan. I've already reverse engineered everything I could possibly learn about psychology, business, politics, hermeneutics, ecology, and Eastern and Western philosophies from Ken Wilber's bibliography. What else is there to know? <laughs> Again, if I had a nickel every time I've heard. That's hilarious. The jargon junkie. The jargon junkie tends to relate to their inner lives as one giant math equation. All they need are the right measuring units and conversion tables to figure out how to have normal conversations with people. They find themselves armed to the teeth with the latest and greatest jargon and psychobabble that money can buy, ironically sabotaging their own growth by overly defining themselves by whatever terminology they've picked up the most recently. Common phrase, again, if I had a nickel. Well, darling, I've recently learned that I am an Enneagram type nine. So if you wanna continue our relationship, you will first need to study the worksheet I provided for you on this convenient handout. Knowing that you are a type four, this may be difficult for you. So I'll be offering a breakout session in the dining room at 3.15. All right, next one, the state chaser. Once had a taste of the divine and now spends your entire life chasing the transcendent dragon. The state chaser takes spiritual bypassing to the big leagues, attracted like a moth to a flame, to any method of substitute gratification she can find, sex, drugs, or an endless gluttony at the mystical buffet line, lives almost entirely in the imaginal realm, spending countless hours counting angels and dancing on pinheads. 
often suffers from spiritual diminishing returns due to ongoing neglect of overall psychological growth and balance, can easily turn into chronic solipsism when left untreated. Common phrase, <laughs> well, from a non-dual perspective. <laughs> the integral idealist. Fully understanding the integral map, the integral idealist remains trapped in an ivory tower of holistic idealism that prevents them from ever actually engaging with partiality. The integral idealist is unwilling to soil his hands by touching the world, at least until the world is ready to meet him on his own level. Common phrase, I won't buy integral products until they completely reinvent our economic system first. <laughs> The provocateur disagrees with you just to disagree, even if you happen to be agreeing, enjoys a self-image of being the elite among the elite, a high cognitive capacity, stilted language, and talent for perspectable gymnastics result in becoming perpetually trapped in a devil's advocate role. Having become so confident in his own understanding and embodiment of integral living, the provocateur no longer has much use for people like Ken Wilber, whose work they have already outgrown and whose following is probably even holding them back. Provocateurs often feel a passionate disinterest in Ken Wilber's approach and hence spend every waking moment letting the rest of the world know how utterly uninterested they are. Common phrase, why won't you debate me? No, when left untreated, the provocateur can quickly regress to the dragon slayer. Dragon slayers are convinced that they have found the single thread that will unravel the entire integral sweater. Some chink in the armor that will bring Ken Wilber's entire integral kingdom crashing down around him in one fell swoop. The dragon slayer sees himself as the protagonist in an epic struggle between good and evil, like the archer who sends an arrow through the dragon's single missing scale, killing the beast in one hyper-focused shot common phrase. Did you read my new article on Frank Visser's site? You won't name any names though. Frank, either. we're kidding, buddy. We love you, man. We love you. Just a joke. Again, humility. You know some dragon slayers. I know that. The shadow boxer. This one might be uh, about me. I don't know. I can't tell. Enjoys making objects out of other people's subjects. Litters the community with passive aggressive comments, often complaining about how everyone is being so passive aggressive all the time. Spends time writing lists to make fun of other people's shadows. <laughs> Common mm. phrase, you should probably three, two, one that. Uh, this one has a treatment. That treatment is, uh, you should probably three, two, one that. <laughs> and that brings us to number uh, number nine, the spiral wizard. <laughs> this, is, this is my favorite graphic that I did. <laughs> this is by far my favorite graphic I did for these. Uh, the That's spiral awesome. wizard uses integral language to mythologize and inflate their own ego. If you really go around calling yourself a spiral wizard, you're just asking to get punched in the face eventually. Common phrase, why do you keep punching me in the face? <laughs> <laughs> All right, stereotype number 10, the super pandit. This guy is just the worst. Thinks he's oh so cool because he invented integral theory and hangs out with <laughs> celebrities. He looks like Clark Kent got stuck with Lex Luthor's barber. He's best known for drawing a plus sign on a legal pad and calling it quadrants. Now, again, I made these many, many years ago, so I had to do an update for this one. So we now have the updated Super Pandit. <laughs> Same as the previous version, but less pre-trans confusion. That's awesome. Gotta have, gotta have the hair. So there you go. The top 10 expanded to 11 stereotypes of the integral community. I want to know 
Dude. I want to know how it landed for you. I want to know if you know people like this. I want to know if you are one of these people. I have time. been at least four or five of them, sometimes at the same time, uh, over my long 20-something year trajectory in integral world. So um, I'm hoping we can have a little bit of fun with that. Um, I'm hoping it's a source of, of reflection. And um, again, it's just an opportunity for us to practice a little more humility. I love them. I love all the images on there. You put a lot of effort into it. These are great. I put a little, I put a little elbow grease into this episode. I feel like I just thought of one of like a, I don't know if you'd say integral doper, you know, like somebody like I was thinking integral Olympian, like trying to do everything, you yeah. know, like I want to become like the superhuman thing. That was like something I was trying to do, you know, with all my lists, but I called like the integral doper, like, you know, like somebody just roided out, like. <laughs> <laughs> yep. The, the, uh, the integral ascender. Do you even practice, bro? Yeah. <laughs> Do you even meditate, bro? Yeah. That's, no, that's, that's, that's the other thing, too, is that because I wrote these like seven or eight years ago, yeah. in the time since, I mean, there's been probably another rack- dozen new characters that have come to I want to know what be you your think. Book. Yeah, I want to know what you guys think those caricatures are. Let us know in the comments down there, wherever you find this, YouTube, yeah. Integral Life, what have you. What... Um, what sort of uh, common stereotypes have you seen? And again, the purpose here is not to be insulting or to be cruel, but to just- Just have fun. The humility of humor. Yeah, it's to hold our shadows lightly, man, because Jesus, not a single one of us is walking around without a shadow. Sometimes yeah. your shadows are going to look like these guys. Uh, maybe you've got your own odd concoctions that you'd like yeah. to share with the community. Yeah. Let us know. Gotta have some humor. That's a key sign with humility. I'm glad mm-hmm. we- land on this point it's like yeah if never laughing at yourself mm, they share the same root right humor yeah humility. exactly yeah exactly all right nice. man well i'm feeling confident and humble yeah this is good this is a fun fun one to do um i've been seeing people have been having a good time on chat so thanks everybody for tuning in and Nice. I don't have an I don't have an opener. Is there any questions over there? That uh, we no, I think we we addressed one of the main ones that people ask, and, and people are like actually having conversations amongst themselves as they oh, listen. So that's that's perfect. That's really lovely. Love it. All right, man. Well, this was fun. Yeah, it was good to see you. You too. And uh, everybody, you obviously see we're on a new time and day. Yeah, new, that, new actually, day, let's really, make, same time. Let's make that official. So we're doing now the yeah. second Monday. Of mm-hmm. the month, we it used yeah. to be second Tuesday for the first like two years. We did this. Yeah. We just made a change. Uh, it's now yeah. the second Monday of the month. Yeah. Uh, same bat time, same bat channel. Exactly. Cool. All right, man. I love you, buddy. Right. Love you too. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. See ya. Bye. Bye. Bye.